Good morning. It's Sunday, November 15th, and once again we find ourselves doing online services. Welcome. We're so glad that you've joined us and trust that you will be encouraged and blessed in your walk with God during our time together today. call to worship is from Psalm 123, 1-4. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the female slave look to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes, Lord, look to the Lord our God, till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are with us and you go before us. We lift our eyes to you, knowing how desperately we need you. Forgive us for our sins and worry, and remind us that no matter what we face, we can depend on you. You are our strong helper and you give us strength to endure whatever trials and disappointments we face. God, you are good. Thank you for loving us and never giving up on us. Amen.
Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our God, we come before you with many questions on our mind. We genuinely hope that this lockdown would not progress to the point that it has. And it's bringing in us memories of what was. So God, we pray, please be with us. God, we pray, please be with our province, as they are looking to get the numbers under control. God, we pray, please be with our health care workers as they have been having to deal with this increased number of cases. God, we pray, please be with the business owners and the workers that are impacted by this. Two major hits in a year. God, it's hard. But at the same time, we also want to say thank you. Thank you that we have seen you work so much so through all of it. And God, we pray that when we look back on this time in the future, we will be able to see you working again, working to build your kingdom here in North Norfolk and in the province and in the country and across the world. God, that is the thing that we ultimately pray the most for. And God, we want to also thank you so much for answers to prayer in our congregation. Lord, this week there has been so many things that have been making us smile even in spite of everything else. God, we want to thank you for new people that have come to know you. We want to thank you for answers to prayer as to healing. We want to thank you for the people that have been able to get back to work even though they didn't think they would be able to for quite some time after this. God, each of these things sit with us, and they lift us up. And so we say thank you. And finally, God, we want to pray for the future. While it's hard to see beyond what is directly in front of us, nevertheless, we know that you are at work. God, we know that there will be a time where 
There will not be lockdowns anymore. And while it will be far in the future, we know that that time is coming. And so, Lord, we pray that during this time now, you prepare us for then. You help us to know which blocks to be set. Help us to know what steps need to be taken. So that when that time comes, God, we hit the ground running with all that we are. Lord, these things we pray. Amen. Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. In the story of Samuel, we learn an important truth about our Christian faith. A truth that I think is important for us to keep in mind the longer we are followers of Christ. And what that truth is can best be seen in three moments in Samuel's life. The three moments where he is involved in a handing off of the torch. The story of Samuel begins much as Samson's did, with Samuel's parents. His mother Hannah, we read, was unable to have children. And then, after much suffering and hardship and prayer, God gifts Hannah with a son. And his name is Samuel, meaning God heard. And it isn't long into Samuel's upbringing that the decision is made that the young boy should be set aside for serving the Lord. And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that from the point that the young boy is pretty much weaned, 
He is placed in the care of a priest named Eli to serve in his household and learn the ropes. And as the child settled in for his new life, it doesn't take long, really only about a paragraph, for us to come to question if this was really such a wise choice on the part of Samuel's parents. For Eli, the priest had a problem. He was getting on in years, and the people around him were beginning to ask those questions that always need to be asked when you are getting on to the end of your career in life. Those questions about who is going to take over for Eli when he's gone. And while at first the answer may have seemed obvious, Eli had several sons, strapping boys, raised by him. As we go further, we realize that there is a big problem with Eli's sons picking up their father's torch. For Eli's children were the prototypical examples of what in time would come to be known as the wild pastor's kids. They were getting into all sorts of nonsense that was causing the Israelite people, and more concerningly, even God himself, to collectively begin to turn up their noses at these young wild men, and in time this even led to questioning Eli's ability to lead as well, as he was, after all, seemingly turning a blind eye to his sons and their nonsense. And so the great question was posed, who will be the one to lead Israel? Who will be the one to follow in the steps of Eli? And that is when we read that God first spoke to Samuel calling him in the night. At first, as the Lord calls out, Samuel assumes that it's just his aged mentor, and so he rushes to Eli to see what he wants. But it's not him. So Samuel returns to bed. Again this happens, and then a third time. And it was then that Eli broke wise. It's God calling you, Samuel. Answer. And soon the question of succession was put to rest. It would be the young Samuel, the one who talks to God, who would take up the torch from Eli. And this is the first time a torch was passed in the life of this young boy prophet. Time goes on. A while later, Eli dies, and Samuel takes over. And when he does, we read things are rough. There are enemies on all sides of Israel, bearing in, stealing all that is precious to the chosen ones. And so the people, when faced with their enemies, cry out, who can save us? And this is how the young priest holding Eli's torch was shown, in fact, to also be a judge of his people, a leader called by God to save the Israelites in their times of struggles, again, like Samson or like Gideon. Battles, we read, are fought. Wars are won. Israel rises in prominence across the land, and times are good, if not great. And Samuel's name becomes known as one of the great judges of Israel, ensuring his name would be remembered for what he, with God's help, had built in the land of his forefathers. But then time goes on. What is became what was and the memory of its luster and its grandeur fade. Samuel found himself as old as Eli when they first met, and those same questions that his long-past mentor caused the people to grapple with now fell to Samuel to do the same. To whom will I pass my torch? Who will carry on for me when I am gone? 
Samuel too had sons, we read. Strong young men that he raised himself. But too much of his old mentor's life had rubbed off on Samuel's because while we tried to place his sons in this position, setting them to take over for him when the time came, we read that in this role his boys were corrupt and abusive, again causing the people of Israel to turn up their noses. And so we read Samuel's people came together and discussed among themselves just what to do. And as often happens in this kind of conversation about the future of leadership, the discussion arrived at a rather radical idea. If Eli, the previous judge, had bad heirs, and Samuel, the current judge, had bad heirs, well, maybe the time has come to call it a day on having judges. Maybe we should do as the other nations around us. Get a king. This decision of the people of Israel is one of the most consequential things that happens in the entirety of the Old Testament. A judge was a leader directly appointed by God to live out the divine plan while leading the Israelite people. For the Israelites now to say that they were done with judges, while well, to Samuel's ears, as they told him that he would be the last in a long line, their words sounded mighty close to them saying that his that they were done with God, or they did not care for a thing that he had done for them. That Samuel had led his people as a judge, God by his side for so long, through so many good times. What did it say to him that now the Israelites didn't want anyone in his position over them ever again? Probably some part of him got it after all his sons were royally messing things up, but to do away with everything that Samuel had lived his life by, because of just that? And for what, a king? Kings were tyrants. Kings stepped on the backs of their own people just as much as they stood up for them. How was this not an insult to everything Samuel had built? How was this not the people turning their backs on him and God? But still, we read the people insisted. We want a king. And so with God's approval, Samuel relented. Not long after, we read a man came through town. He was tall, strong, chiseled, charismatic, in every way a leader of men, and his name was Saul. And when Samuel laid eyes on him, it was made clear by God that this was the man to be made king. And so the second passing of the torch happens in the story of the last judge of Israel. At first we read that Saul absolutely nailed being royalty. He strengthens his government. He leads his people on victorious campaigns and even continues on in a lot of the religious reforms that Samuel himself began years before, bringing the kingdom to greater prominence in the area and bringing God more to the center of his people's lives. But then the faults in Saul begin to show. For us reading them today, well, to be honest, they kind of seem minor, but Samuel didn't see them that way at all. First, there is a story of a battle where Saul waited with his men for seven days for Samuel to come so that he would sacrifice to God before they descended on their enemies. 
Samuel winds up being late and Saul gets restless, so he chooses to make the sacrifice to God himself. He was a king after all. In his mind, surely it would all be fine. But in the law of Moses, sacrifices of this kind would be something saved for the priest to do. And so when Samuel shows up and sees what's happening, he flips out. You should have waited for me, Samuel screams at Saul. You violated the law. You went against God. So I am telling you now, your line as king will one day end. Later, there is a battle that Saul is looking to fight. And he goes to Samuel for some advice. And so the last judge tells him, yes, fight, but God says to raise everything to the ground when you are done. And so Saul goes off to war, but following the battle, we read his men, instead of destroying everything, took some plunder. A very normal thing for armies at that time to do. But a decision that did go against what God told Samuel to tell Saul. And so again, Samuel, we read, loses it. Because of this action, your reign will come to an end soon. Now, should Saul have listened to Samuel, listened to God? The answer there, obviously, yes. As the king of Israel, listening to God and his prophets is an important thing to do. That Saul, the first king of Israel, didn't do this twice was something worth calling out. But while they are stories for different times, what Saul does to incite the anger of God and Samuel is frankly peanuts next to what some of the future kings are forgiven for even a number of the good future kings why it is that Saul is turned out and the others are not is never told to us but nevertheless not long after the incident with the plunder Samuel went in search of a new king to again hand his torch off to after a while he found his man a boy called David a shepherd from Bethlehem hardly a figure of a king, and this was the final time that Samuel would pass the torch in his life. Samuel died a few years later. While at first it looked like there may be something to this David king who God had told Samuel to choose to be king, by the time of Samuel's death there would have been a lot of doubt in the air. David blew up in the public eye pretty quickly, defeating a champion of the enemy in single combat with a sling, marrying the king's daughter and befriending the prince, leading successful raids with impossible odds. But to this success, Saul grew jealous. And when Samuel drew his last breath, it was after the king had drove David into hiding at the point of a spear. And so the truth of the matter is that when Samuel died, the kingdom that he had helped build was far from what it had been. And the future of everything that he had worked so hard toward was simply unclear. But, unknown to Samuel, God used David to pick up building his kingdom where the last of the judges had left off. And in time, the Israelite people thrived again. And many generations later, through David's line, who was anointed by Samuel, I'll remind you, Jesus Christ was born. In the story of Samuel, there is a truth to be learned about our Christian faith. And it is a truth that all believers have to grapple with at some point in our lives. Us, the same as the apostles and everyone in between and also yet to come. 
For many of us, we are already at the point where we're grappling with this. And for many others among us, this grappling is something that will only come one day in the future. And the truth that causes this turmoil is this. Building God's kingdom takes many generations. It started before any of us were alive, and it will continue on long after we're gone. And while that may sound like a simple truth to take, and while that may seem like only a good thing, there will undoubtedly come a time where that truth is going to be hard to stomach for everyone listening to this. And while that may seem like a puzzling thing today to say, I'll try to explain what I mean with a little analogy. You are a builder, and what you build are exterior walls. And when you were young, you're hired to work on a spectacular mansion. And on that mansion, you spend your whole working life. And my word, you are amazing at what you do. Over your career, you build out new walls. You apply new siding. There's a period of time where the mansion is all about stucco, so you learn how to apply that, and in time, you rock that as well. When it comes to building new and maintaining the walls of this mansion, you are good. No, you are great even. Your work on that mansion is immaculate. But when you get to retirement and new wall people come in, and just as you are heading out the door, you hear them decide, hey, these walls, they would really look better instead as ground-to-roof windows to which they proceed to rip out all that you've done, all that you've spent your life on, turning that part of the mansion into what seems to you to be a greenhouse-esque monstrosity. In this analogy, the kingdom of God is the mansion, and you, O oh builder of walls, are the humble Christian, working on that grand house, expanding it, working on the exterior, making it an answer to the era you live in. Valuable work to be sure. After all, people are far more likely to enter a building that is visibly kept up than one that's not. People are far more likely to join the kingdom of God if it's shown to be relevant to them and not just some fading relic of the past. And that takes work. And the work you spent your life on, keeping that building in fighting form, it was valuable work. The life you lived building the kingdom was a life well spent. Never doubt that. But as I figure it, the very fact that work was valuable is also a part of the reason why it is obviously hard when you near the end and the people who look to take the torch from you have vastly different opinions on what the mansion should look like. It's hard to be met with this after a lifetime of loving labor, as it undoubtedly was hard for your parents when the same happened to them, and your parents' parents all the way back to the book of 1 Samuel, where it was obviously painfully hard for the last judge of Israel to hand off the torch when his time had come. As I read the life of Samuel, this is what I see. Not once, not twice, but three times Samuel has to deal with that question of what's the next guy going to do with these walls that I built? The first time, he was the new guy who tore things down and built something new. The next two times, well, 
He was left watching in abject horror as all that he had spent his life building was ripped to the ground and in its place was hung something new that genuinely looked like a terrible idea to him. But here's the thing. Here is the comfort of Samuel's story. Here is the wonder and the beauty of it. God worked through David. God worked through the monarchy. More than just worked even. The influence of God's kingdom during that time was built to heights that were not surpassed until Christ was born, like a millennium later. After Samuel, the kingdom went on. The kingdom of God continued to be built. Though the mansion's walls changed, it still stood. Each generation of believers should be valued for what they added to the kingdom in their time. Each worked hard and did good things, brought new people in, built the walls out just a little bit further. But in time, we come to our end and things are handed off. And when that happens, while those who will take our place will build something that looks different, never forget the mansion that you dedicated your life to building and maintaining still stands. The kingdom goes on. And that is hard to take. And there is nothing wrong with feeling that way. But also be comforted by that. Because it means that the thing that you have spent your whole life working on to make as appealing as possible, it will last. What you have done with your life working to build God's kingdom will stand the test of time. We work on the walls of the mansion not because we care solely for the walls, but instead because we care for the building as a whole. The time will come when we too have to hand off the torch. The time will come when it will be someone else's turn to take up where we have left off building God's kingdom with his help. And while that may be tough when it happens, take comfort in knowing that the thing we spent our lives building will keep on because God will make sure that it does. And because of this, what we do matters far after we are gone. In the story of Samuel, there is a truth to learn about our Christian faith. And that truth is that the kingdom of God takes many generations to build. And that is great because it means that even though things will change, and even though the future may look uncertain, the kingdom we are helping to build will go on and that God will be with those who came after us as he has been with us. There is real comfort in that. Our lives take on more value by my reckoning because of it.
And today's benediction comes from the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Go now and serve the Lord.